Hello, I'm Matt Watts and this is 72Cast, the podcast about people who love the EFL, for people who love the EFL. On this episode, I sat down with EFL fan and National League expert Ryan Deeney. Ryan, thank you so much for coming on the pod. First of all, I just wanted to ask you about your earliest memories of football and of the EFL in particular. Well, I've grown up a Birmingham City fan, so obviously it's a family thing, you know, granddad supports them, dad supports them, stepdad supports them, mum supports them and all the rest of it. Um, And yeah, just I suppose it goes back to sort of early days, going down to the ground, I think. I think my first game may have been the 7-0 against Stoke, although I was about three years old at the time and don't remember it. So um, sort of going back from there, I think um, I remember being at a game against Gillingham. I remember the first goal I remember was Damien Johnson scoring the fourth against Grimsby. And yeah, it all just sort of stemmed from there. Obviously around that time as well, Blues were constantly in promotion races and then sort of moved to the Premier League. So it was kind of a lovely start and um, probably false promise of what followed. So you're a Birmingham City fan. You're also a massive fan of the EFL in general, but you've also got this really strong knowledge and passion for the National League. Now, as you said, things haven't been great at Birmingham over the last few years, but they haven't been so bad that you need to start thinking about the National League. So where did that kind of interest come from? Was there a particular thing that sparked it? I think it was family. Um as has kind of been publicised elsewhere, you know, um, my cousins are Troy and Ellie Staney. So Troy had a spell when he first joined Warsaw. Troy had a spell at um, Halzobi where he I think he scored eighteen ten or something like that. Then we get into one game about four five minutes late, and uh, he'd already scored from thirty yards. <laughs> so ah, that's fun. Um, game got then got called off at half time. Um, and then later on, my cousin Ellie C left Villa, um, joined. Initially joined Kettering um, and then had a good spell at Worcester City. And it was around the time when Worcester City were doing their bits in the FA Cup. So they beat Coventry at the Rico. They um, played Sheffield United the, at the game against Scunthorpe, where I think the penalty shootout ended something like 15 16 or something like that. Um, and yeah, sort of following him, following um, Talford, uh, Tamworth, and then Talford from there. And then um, a friend of mine around the corner from Solio Wars, so we started going up there and I started sort of heading up there more often. Um, and again, it just so happened to coincide with the promotion season. So I suppose a lot of the love kind of started from, you know, you kind of get into things as things start to happen and you kind of develop a love for it there. And then I had a Solio Moors blog for um, a few years with uh, Vault Football. And yeah, just kind of picked it back up. I think um, COVID was a big help as well, obviously. Need something to do during COVID and um, sort of going back and forth for the old National League stuff. And that's where uh, the NR Musings blog sort of started up again. So, um, yeah, it's all sort of, I don't know, stemmed from there, I guess. And yeah, a lot of fun. So how would you say the National League has changed since you started following it? Because from the outside looking in, I would say that it's changed quite a lot over the last few seasons. And that might largely be to do with some of the money that's been in the league and the profile of some of the teams. But from your perspective, how much has it changed? I suppose the primary thing is that when when Solio Moors first went up in 2016, 
there was still quite a lot of part-time clubs in there and it was a sort of nice mix of full-time and part-time clubs as you kind of expect at that level you know obviously the ones that have dropped down from the football league and those sort of rising up through the divisions um in non-league I don't know how much of an impact COVID probably had but it feels like since COVID the amount of part-time football teams in the division has decreased I think a lot of it's down to again because I think one's probably a bit of an opportunity because obviously you're on BT Sport, you've kind of got the little extra income from it. You kind of have to almost do it as well. I think some clubs feel because you have to kind of keep up with the Joneses and sort of push for a full-time model to sort of allow your club to, you know, push forward and move forward sort of both financially and also to give the players the best chance to be able to perform at the level. I think we've probably seen that. Dorking have probably been the most um, high-profile case this summer where they've gone into a hybrid model now because they've done the first season, thought we'll get by part-time and they've kind of realised as the season's gone and actually the professionalism at the level is really high now. So I think a lot of that comes about. I think also as well, probably a lot of the part-time teams did drop out of the league for a couple of years because after COVID, obviously the financial sort of disparity in those clubs not maybe being able to afford as much as the clubs that had the money there already, I think that's played a bit of a part as well. So I think there's various reasons, but I think that over the last sort of eight, nine years, I think the major factor has probably been the amount of professionalism and full-time sort of football clubs in the league now. You mentioned BT Sport as well, and obviously we know that a new TV deal for the EFL is coming, but over the last few seasons, if you've been a fan of a National League side, you've probably been able to see your team on TV a lot more than fans in League One, League Two. So I would imagine that's also a factor. It certainly, I mean, it's got to be some sort of factor, hasn't it? The fact that you are, I think the fact that you've got a BT Sport deal and I think, um, I don't know exactly how the costs are split down the leagues, but it's primarily been the National League Premier Division that's been the one that's showcased. They've only just started doing a couple of um, North and South games a season on there. So every club, what, what they do is for the first couple of months, they try and put all 24 clubs live on, well, I suppose it's TNT Sport now, isn't it, BT Sport? Um, and they try and put every club live on the box and then obviously from there it's just a case of, you know, what games sort of, um, I suppose, gauge people's interest more. I think um, it wouldn't surprise me if that has a, had a bit of a factor just because you are out there and I suppose there is a bit more support as well. Um, BT generally are supportive of the league and try and give as much to as they possibly can. Um so, yeah, it wouldn't surprise me if that has an effect, but I don't know for certain. So, last season, there was a phenomenal title race in the National League, which caught the attention of not just EFL fans, but probably Premier League fans and football fans from other countries as well. You had Wrexham, of course, backed by Ryan Reynolds and Rob McElhenney, and Notts County, one of the oldest clubs in the world, vying for the title, both playing different styles of football, but excellent football, both racking up lots of wins, scoring lots of goals. Obviously, this year, they are both in the Football League, back in the EFL. I feel as though a lot of EFL fans will already know quite a bit about Wrexham and Notts County. If we start on Wrexham, lots of EFL fans will know about Paul Mullin. As I said, they'll know about the owners. They'll probably know as well about the fact they've got Ben Foster in goal, but what can you tell us about Wrexham? What can we expect from them stylistically in terms of the way they'll play in League Two this season? Wrexham are a very structured team. They turn up. Since Phil Parkson walked through the door, he's gone 
three five two and this is how we do things and it has worked. Um I think what you tend to find with Wrexham within that structure is that a lot of their sort of um quality I think comes from a force of personality and a togetherness. I think the while we can kind of go I can go further in depth about how they play and stuff, I think the one thing to remember with Wrexham is although there's all the noise and everything around it, I think they've spent two years developing a sort of culture and identity and sort of learning to understand that identity with the new ownership, with all the cameras around the place all the time and um, with all the sort of media attention and focus and interviews from elsewhere and you know people like Ben Foster walking into the club. I think they've kind of learned to understand what their new identity is and I think that's part of the reason. They've kind of had to develop a thicker skin and make sure that they keep a cooler, calm head when they're playing football and sort of not get too I suppose get too excited almost with what's going on um, I think that's played a huge part in the way last season unfolded where there was a lot of pressure on them to win promotion more from the outside noise more than anything and um, you know they're able to handle themselves and understand who they are what they do and just keep plugging away and that's why they're constantly just you know, they'd start games well and if they didn't start games well they'd finish games well and they just knew the right times to strike and, yeah, just never really gave in or gave up. I think um, stylistically, like I mentioned earlier, um, it's very 3-5-2. There's just a number of different ways that they hurt teams. So you've got, obviously, the quality of Paul Mullin up front, but then he's always got a partner alongside him in Dolly Palmer and Sam Dolby, who are you know, big, strong lads. I don't want to do a disservice to Dolby or Palmer because they are you know, technically capable and they can while they're not the quickest, they are guys that can move. Yeah, so they've got a sort of front two that works. And then from there, a lot of it's about um, forward runners. Um, very, you know, let's try and play for the thirds. But if we can't play through the thirds, let's find another way. Let's move into the channels. Try and play from there. Um, try and build overloads in wide areas and deliver the ball into the box. And yeah, I think to an extent, and I'm weary of saying this, they're a little bit like... They're kind of, they were a little bit like a non-league version of sort of Ferguson United where you always felt like the door was going to be battened down at some point. They'd find another way to get forward. They'd put set pieces into the boxes. I mean, you've got Bentoza's long throw. You've got the delivery from corners. You've got three centre-halves that are pretty much always, you know, six foot three plus. Um, And yeah, they'd always just find a way of just finding a way to score a goal. I think that's... um, Maybe the best sort of way I can describe them. <laughs> Hi everyone. I hope you are enjoying this episode of 72 Cast. If you are, then please leave us a positive review. It really does help. Also, if you know someone who might like this podcast, then tell them about us. Spread the word. Thank you so much for your support. Let's get back to the episode. If we move on to Notts County, again, from the outside looking in, I think a lot of EFL fans will know that they're managed by Luke Williams. They play some really good football. Obviously, they have Macaulay Langstaff up front, who scored a lot of goals last season. They've lost Ruben Rodriguez, but they've managed to bring in David McGoldrick. And I think EFL fans will probably know as well that Notts County generally don't tend to do things the easy way as was kind of proven by their playoff campaign last year. But again, stylistically, what can you tell us about Notts County? What can we expect from them in League Two this season? 
you don't find football clubs in non-league that dominate 70% of the ball pretty much every single game that play the patterns of football that they play that are happy to they'll have games where they'll have a fairly structured sort of I suppose 3-4-3 three, three it would sort of come under um, and then they'll have games where there was one game last season where the two wide centre-halves are basically playing as wing-backs and the wing-backs playing as wingers and you've kind of got just got one midfielder dropping in and the tactical sort of ability to Teams will obviously set up and understand what Notts County are going to do from the start of games. It's whether they can stop that. But the moment that a team maybe tries to get on top of the game, Williams and his team will switch it up so that they find an overload somewhere to continue playing football. Whether that's pushing Matt Palmer forward so they've effectively got six attackers, whether that's pushing the wing-backs forward so they're effectively part of a front three whether that's starting to push the centre-halves overloading, whether that's to bring players back in so they can dominate the ball in deeper areas and then sort of make one or two passes forward. They've got so much technical ability, so much tactical nails in the dugout and so much intelligence on the pitch that they just understand what they need to do at any given moment to try and find some dominance again in the game. So even though they might have periods where you know a team get on top of them and really press them, they find a way and another you know, another version of themselves to then go, okay, that's where the overload is. Let's play there. Once the team figures that out, it's like, okay, let's play there. And yeah, it's um, phenomenal to watch when they're at the best. So we've got two very strong teams, but also very different teams in Wrexham and Notts County. I think you probably know the next question I'm going to ask you. How do you think they will fare in League Two this season? Because as you know, it's 1-24 to season, everyone's having their say, and I keep on seeing Wrexham and Notts County featuring very highly. Now, we've seen the likes of Salford and Stockport come up, and they've both done well in League 2, but they haven't quite managed to take that next step and get promoted to League 1. So, do you think Wrexham and Notts County can both challenge for promotion and maybe actually get promoted this season? Me, personally, I've put them in my top three with Stockport and there's something eating away at me saying one of them isn't going to do but I don't know which one um, it feels a little too obvious I think the thing for me with Wrexham and Notts coming up is that when you compare them to those other sides so Salford they jumped into the National League and won promotion straight away with Stockport although they had the director of football and stuff there Challenger walked in and just they won promotion that season I think with Wrexham and Notts County what you've seen is with Wrexham, it's been two years in the making. Um, they got all the right personnel in at the top of the club um, in that first year and a couple of sort of big key players like Mullin and Toza. I think what you've seen from there is a gradual turnover of playing staff to the point where last season they were strong and ready to go and only had to pick a certain spots in the team. So this summer, they've only saw world ball and they probably only need two or three, maybe more. With... Not to county, although Luke Williams only joined last season, the owners have very much taken ownership of the way the squad is built over the last few years. And I think it's effectively been something that's two, three years in the making for them as well. So I think, again, they're coming up. They're able to get the business done earlier. And I think they're ready. There's no sort of like, oh, we're not sure about this and we're not sure about that. I think both clubs know exactly what they are, what they're going to do. And I think they're ready for what's going to come ahead. So that's why I'm comfortable backing them both for promotion because 
they're comfortable in their own skin now there's no sort of need to improve a culture or identity or a tactical implementation they they're going to go up knowing exactly who they are and knowing that yeah they're capable of winning promotion I must say, just looking at League Two this season, it does look like an absolutely phenomenal league. I mean, you could very easily make a case for probably 10 teams winning automatic promotion. And it does feel as though there are going to be some very good teams that miss out on the playoffs who last season may have even challenged for automatic promotion. Obviously, Wrexham and Notts County getting promoted does leave somewhat of a void in the National League. As we've mentioned, there have been some rather big names or teams that have been seriously backed in the National League in the last few years. But how is the 23-24 season shaping up in the National League? This is the fun bit because I think a lot of people have sort of, again, Stockport, Rexham and Notts County have gone and they're sort of three of the big four from the last couple of years. And Chesterfield are, you know, outright favourites and I have backed them to win promotion, I will say. But you know, there's so much else going on in the division. Um, Oldham have got their, uh, trying to think, no, they've got the stuff together, let's say. Um, they've got themselves together and they're, you know, really sort of pushing and, um, you know, offering good contracts to good players and really got an idea of what they want from their team this season. Um, so they're going to be up and challenging. Um, Eastley have got Stuart Donalds back in charge, the old uh, Sunderland owner, and they're putting pumping money in. York have had Matt Oogler take over and they've spent the best part of, you know, 500 grand sort of uh, improving their team. That was the figure I saw the other day anyway. I know um, Tyler Corner and Dippo Akinyemi have been brought in for six-figure fees. So they're pumping money at it. Then you've got the four clubs that were in the playoffs last season with Chesterfield, which is Woking, Barney, Borenwood and Bromler. Um, so there are clubs everywhere, basically, I suppose a lot of them probably think, you know, now Rex and Notts County have gone, this is our chance to strike them in promotion. And it feels like a lot of the clubs have all of a sudden come together at one time and gone, this is our opportunity now. So it creates, um, yeah, really another, you've just mentioned it with League Two, and when putting together the um, season preview and stuff for the National League, it's you feel like there's about 12 clubs you could easily put in that top seven and probably four or five clubs you could easily put in the sort of top two or three. And it's... Uh, yeah, quite difficult to... It, it just, just makes it very exciting, doesn't it? <laughs> In some respects, as a National League purist, are you almost glad to see the back of the likes of Wrexham and Notts County? Because it did seem as though last year they were dominating all the National League conversation and they were head and shoulders above the rest of the team. So do you think that it's actually going to make for a more entertaining National League and possibly a better product? I don't know if glad to see him goes the right works. I think that's half the following actually uh, <laughs> gone now. Um, now all jokes aside, I think um, that's not too front part there. There, I suppose it does. It allows other clubs to sort of you know take that spotlight. Now I think um, Chesterfield and Oldham probably are the two big fish. And I think they'll have a lot of attention this year just because of the you know the size of the clubs, the EFL histories, and even Premier League history in Oldham's case. But yeah, it does kind of. I think it does open up that conversation again. Of all of a sudden, you don't know exactly who's going to finish first, second, and third. You, you know, there's a number of clubs that could be involved in those um, positions. Which yeah, I suppose it does open the league up again and you know, gives everyone an opportunity. Almost, I don't want to say level playing field because the financial you know disparities are still there in some cases. But it certainly does. Um, yeah, I suppose as you say, it, it opens the division up again. Now, I'd like to think that. 
if you are listening to this podcast, you obviously like EFL, but if you do want a bit more information about the National League and you want to know a bit more about some of those teams below the top 92, I would certainly recommend giving Ryan a following on Twitter or whatever it's called now. His handle is at NL Musings and he always puts together a really interesting season preview usually does a season review at the end of the season as well. So I definitely recommend having a look at his season preview. It's incredibly detailed. Now, I don't want you to pick through your season preview and I'm not going to try and get you to summarise it in a minute or anything like that. But is there maybe a dark horse or are there a couple of players that you think EFL fans should be keeping an eye out for in the National League this season? Dark horse, I've gone for Gateshead, who are um, managed by Mark Williamson, someone that, you know, Certainly Newcastle fans and um, you know, Premier League and EFL fans will remember for his time. Just a really fun football team to watch. Um, there were 20-1 to 1 to win the National League North when they won that. Um, last season, going to a little bit of a rut at the start of the campaign where they had a few injuries and sort of tried to bring in players on short-term loans and short-term deals and stuff, and it just never worked. And it fell or they started to work that out, sort of during the season um, that, you know, maybe they can't get away with the same stuff they got away with in um, step two. And there's been a very clear plan this summer um, and sort of during the course of last year to improve the quality of the squad, um, maybe a little bit of the depth of the squad. Um, for a ch- slight change of shape. Um, and from Boxing Day onwards last year, they had the strongest XG numbers in the league, which, you know, above Wrexham, above Notts County, like, that was the level of consistent quality they were putting forward. Um, and it all sort of coincided with them um, going on a late season run that not only took them out of the relegation scrap, but took them into a 13th place finish in the end. In terms of players, I think um, I'm probably best referring to the piece I wrote last season with regards to um, players I think EFL clubs should be casting their sort of glances at. I tried to avoid picking all the England C boys because they kind of obviously got the attention with playing for England C and all the rest of it. So. I think although Southend are going to have a number of struggles this year with regards to the financial and the ownership situation, um, the goalkeeper Colin Andende, he's only 19, 20 years old. He kind of got thrown into the limelight last season after Steve Arnold got injured, um, who's since joined Sutton. And I mean, he's obviously going to be a busier boy this year because Southend are unfortunately not going to be the, the same strength that they were last year. But he, I think the biggest credit I can give him is that he's a 19-year-old goalkeeper who doesn't look like a 19 year old goalkeeper he looks you know he looks like a man already um he's got the leap the sort of power in his legs and power in his arms and i think he was um absolutely superb last year i think i'll swear a player i do like is mika rabiero at wildstone um he was i believe a forward slash winger um sort of growing up at huddersfield town i'm pretty sure it was anyway huddersfield He's joined Wildstone, um, sort of joined him around September, October last year and has kind of found his role in a right wing-back position, although it's a bit of a skewy sort of... the play quite a fluid system, Wildstone do. I think, um, again, another club that I'm surprised a lot more clubs haven't been looking at, Stuart Maynard um, and Matt Saunders for the job they've done there um, on a part-time budget. Some of the football they play is fantastic. Um, and Mickey Obiero's um, sort of won the standouts there. He ended up with about 15, 16 goal contributions last year um, and yeah for sort of pacey winger technically okay um, links with the rest of his team well I think one of the player um, just to throw out there is Ray Smith at Mad- uh, Maidenhead sorry um, another part-time team he 
started the season a little bit in and out. He's kind of been his name's been around the first team for a couple of years now, but things just seemed to click for him last year. Um, he played a fair few games sort of on the wing and then made the sort of slot just behind um, Amir Lacroix, who's joined Barra. Kind of made that slot his own. He's just um, a player that just wants to pick the ball up and just run at people. Still got a lot to learn. He's only 20, 21 years old. But, um, yeah, really player that I'm kind of expecting to end up in the AFL at some point um, and hopefully kind of continues where we left off last season. Brilliant. Ryan, thank you so much. I will certainly be keeping an eye out for those players this season. As I said, if you want to know more about the National League, if you want some quality National League coverage in your life, make sure you give Ryan a follow on social media at NL Musings. Ryan, thank you so much for your time.